Welcome to the Hank and Herb Show. My name is Andre Chemo Stone Guest. I'm one of a trio of hosts that we have here on this podcast. We got brother Haroon Shabazz in Baltimore, Maryland. What's going on, Haroon? Salam alaikum. Where they from Salam, black man? And we have brother Chris Fun. Chris, you're not in Baltimore. You're outside of, I forget where you're in the DMV somewhere, man. You in DC. Where you at, Chris? Yeah, I'm at an undisclosed, a undisclosed location. Off oh, you off the grid. So, yeah, I'm Chris, safe. I'm safe. You're in a safe house. Okay. Yeah, All right. Well, the Hank and Herb show is a show where we discuss the topics of the day, usually based on something that one of the three of us have written on educated-guesses.com. But our whole orientation here is towards solution. We had a, on our, on our first podcast, we had Marcus the J Master Roberts on the show and he introduced the concept that we're going to adopt for the Hank and Herb show. And is you can't actually, Marcus says you cannot bring a problem to the bandstand. He's a pianist. He said, nobody in his bands can ever bring a problem to the bandstand without a solution. So on the Hank and Herb show, you can't bring a problem to the podcast without at least one solution to that problem. So we're gonna be dealing with, over the course of this podcast and our series, we're gonna be dealing with a lot of problems that plague our community, particularly those that are plaguing black folks in this country, but we're gonna be solution oriented. We're not only gonna discuss the problems, but we're also going to discuss the solutions. On today's show, we're gonna be dealing with a piece that Brother Shabazz wrote that's up on educated-guesses.com right now called Searching for a Solution to the Public Health Crisis of Police Brutality in the Black Community. And in the piece, Brother Shabazz is actually helping us as citizens. He's a lawyer. He's a criminal defense attorney. He's dealt with police over the past 25 years. And he's dealt with them in some pretty high stake situations because Brother Shabazz for a number of years was dealing with death penalty cases. So his cases were literally a matter of life and death. And the police doing their job and not doing their job could be the difference between somebody losing their life or keeping their life. So what he's done in this piece is he's given us a roadmap as citizens to understand what it is that our rights are as it relates to our encounters with the police and what it is that we should do in understanding what those, what those in individual encounters are, the levels of those encounters, there's actually three of them, and then what we should do, what our rights are as it relates to dealing with the police. But even more so than that, and we'll get at this at the end, he has a solution about how we can actually, what's something that can be done to help cut down on a lot of the shenanigans, a lot of the back and forth, a lot of the tomfoolery, the craziness that goes on with people are very frustrated with the police. So Brother Shabazz, what, first of all, what made you write this piece? What made me write it right is something that has been a problem in, in the black community um, since since the time that we was freed, freed as slaves, right? We, our contact with the criminal justice system has not been a good one over the years. And, and particularly police brutality um, has, um, has had a disproportionate, disproportionate effect upon the black community. Um, and then, so in writing this piece, what I try to address is to, is to deal with the core of the issue. There's over, there's upwards of 60 million contacts between encounters between the police and the public each year. 60 million. That, people, that many times the police actually encounter other people? Yes. Six, wow. that's, that sounds like an extraordinary number, right? So the police is very, very busy. This is an extraordinary hmm. number. And just the law of mathematics will tell you 
that you have those many encounters, something is going to go wrong, right? In a lot of those encounters between the police and, and civilians. And for the black community, those particular encounters can get very ugly. They can be any, anything from a person simply being harassed, mistreated, um, unjustly handcuffed, um, beat up, all the way to falsely arrested, all the way to them losing their lives. And so one thing I like to do, one thing I tried to do in this paper, and one thing I like to do today on, on, on this show, is first of all, lay out what these encounters are, what the rights that people have in these encounters, and to explain to people what is really happening on the ground between the police and civilians. That's what I'm trying to lay out here in, in the piece today. Okay, so there's three levels of encounters with the police right? Um, that you're going to go through. Um, have you ever encountered the police, Chris? I know I have. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. And so when, one of the things I want to ask you is as we go through those, what, what it is that Haroon is going to go through, did you know, because uh, I'll, I'll answer it as well, did you know where you were in this continuum? And now that you know what you know, would you have done anything differently? So what's the first level of the encounter, Haroon? The first level of the encounter is what you call a consensual encounter, right? That does not mean that you, were, you had an encounter with the police where the police had gotten their, your permission, consent to talk to you. What that simply means is that you're, you're not being detained and you're not under, the, uh, under arrest. So, so for instance, say if the police walks up to you while you're walking down the street and initiates a conversation, that's what they would call a consensual encounter. Now, in a consensual encounter, a lot of people don't know that they have a right not to answer any of the questions that the police may ask them. They have a right not to even give the police their name. They have the right not to walk up. To, they have the right to walk away at any time. And the police do not have a right to search them. Now, um, you, so most people are unaware of these rights. And even if they were somewhat unaware of these rights, in many of these encounters, if not most of these encounters, the police create a condition in which, a circumstances in which the person does not feel like they have a right to walk away. Most people who are stopped by the police in a so-called consensual encounter, and that simply means that the police have no evidence that you have committed a crime. They have, they don't even have a, a reasonable suspicion that you committed a crime. But nonetheless, a lot of people are treated in that particular situation um, in such a circumstance, in such a way that the, that the person does not believe that they have a right to just turn around and, and walk away to tell the police to have a nice, nice day. A lot of people do not feel that they even have a right not to answer the police questions. Is it fair to say that the police, would you say that the vast majority of the encounters that 60 million you're talking about fall into this area? I would, I would dare to say the vast majority of those particular situations. And here's, but here's, here's the thing, right? Whenever the police creates a circumstance where a reasonable person would feel that they're not free to leave, then technically under the law, 
they are being detained. They're be, and, and that that goes into the next Sullivan encounter. Right, right, right. absolutely. So let, let's, stay on, let's stay on this one for a second. But yeah, but it's important, but it's important to understand that here. Mm -hmm. Because here's the thing. Um, say for instance, now the courts have recognized that a person is in a tier one, which a consensual, the basic level, a tier one encounter with the police. The courts have recognized that if the police have their siren on, that that's an indication that the police is detaining the individual. Because the police doesn't have to say, I'm detaining you. The police doesn't have to say that, um, that um, you're not free to go for you to be detained. All they have to do is create an environment. If there right. are a number of police on the scene, not just one or two, or say four or five, or if, if it's just two or three police on the scene and they surround you in such a way that a reasonable person would say, wow, I'm not free to walk away, then you're being detained. Right. And when the police create that environment in a consensual encounter, they are violating your rights. They're violating your constitutional Fourth Amendment rights right there and there. Right. And well, a lot of people do not know this. Okay, let's drill down in this in just a second. I don't want to go back to consensual encounter. Would you, is it fair to say that the consensual encounter on many, many times with police officers, they're on a, fix, a fishing expedition, right? They're trying to get some information in order to obtain whatever it is that they're trying to do. They're investigating the crime or whatever. They're trying to get some quote unquote free information, if you will. 95% of the time, I, I would say that. Like say for instance, especially in black communities. Now say if in the rare instance where the police, you know, walks up to an individual, pulls over their car and just start asking the average member of the public about the basketball game last night, right? This type of thing or asking them, oh, it's nice weather out here. And then in certain circumstances in which the police is actually trying to get information about something that happened in the neighborhood and they're making it clear to the person that, hey, there was a shooting last night or there's been trouble in the neighborhood. People been, you know, knocking over mailboxes or whatever. But 95%, I would dare say 95% of consensual encounters is when the police is on a fishing expedition. They're simply encountering that person, hoping that that, that person would show some evidence of criminal activity so right. they can affect arrest. So, so in essence, they, there's a love, there may be a level of intimidation so that they're, they're using a consensual encounter and creating a tension with you, the civilian, to put you in a situation where you may give up information to them that you have, you're under no obligation to do, but to create a situation for you where you feel like you have to say something or they may get something from you that they can use. Right, absolutely. So for, for instance, a lot of times during a so-called consensual encounter, the police may ask the person, is it all right that I look into your backpack, right? And the person under, under intimidation, the way those, those circumstances are, they will consent to the police going into their backpack when, they, when the police didn't have a right to go yeah. in, in the first place. And the police will ask for consent in such a way that they, it makes, this, makes it sound like they're not asking for consent. Right. They're gonna go in your backpack whether you like it or not. If you refuse, then a lot of people would think, well, the police is thinking I'm gonna be, I'm dead, I'm guilty. They're gonna go into my backpack anyway, so I might as well let them go into my backpack. Well, let's, and, use, that, let's use that example. I wanna drill down into that example for a second. If it can be proven 
that say police stop me when I'm, I'm 15 years old, right? right? And they stop me and they want to look in my backpack. Right. And I'm just walking down the street. I'm not in the mall where something went down. They stopped me, they pulled me and said, hey, come here, I want to talk to you. You know, two police officers surround me and they said, son, can we look in your backpack? And if, if, my, if my state of mind is to think that if I don't let them look in my backpack, I might get the beat down, right? Or they may take it from me, so I don't want no trouble. I'm gonna let them do it because I don't feel like I can say no. If I can sort of quote unquote prove that state of mind, at that point, have my rights been violated? Yes, but what the court will look at is they will look at the circumstances, the totality of the circumstances, and they will ask the question, would a reasonable person in that 15-year-old's um, shoes, in that 15-year-old's circumstances, would they have felt that they weren't free to leave, that they were being detained? That they, would they have felt that they could refuse the police um, Re you refuse the police searching their um, their backpack. If the answer is that a reasonable person would would felt that they weren't free, then then what happened? Then then what happened in that circumstances? That fifteen year old constitutional rights had been violated. Have been violated at that period. So yes, Chris, do you when you grew up where you grew up in Baltimore did did the reasonable person think that they could ever tell the police no? It's funny you ask that. I'm, I grew up in like, I grew up not too far from that CVS that burned down. And in the 80s, whenever I hear people talk about, you know, police and over-policing and the, the crime bill and all this, I remember growing up, you couldn't really find the police. <laughs> so, so this conversation is kind of weird when I, when I think about, like you said, when you were 15, I started thinking when I was younger. And I was like, I remember growing up where the problem was actually there weren't enough police. I mean, it sounds crazy now, but a lot of like impoverished neighborhoods that were, you know, hit hard by drugs and crack, police weren't even around until they wanted to like fill the prisons up. And what was that? Then the night, that was really what? When was that bill passed? That was like the 90s, right? The crime bill? It was a Clinton bill, so. Yeah, yeah. so the yeah, back then, I as a child, no, I can't remember like the police. I see it now, but back then, I can't remember the police walking around you know, hey, what y'all doing? Uh, let me ask you a few questions. I never really saw that till later, you know. But, but Haroon, let me ask you this. When, when, you, when we use the reasonable man test, right? Is, right. Do the courts allow for a, a cultural interpretation of that? <laughs> well, um, well, it's a reasonable 15 year old white guy and a reasonable 15 year old white guy. They will take the totality of the circumstances. So some courts have, right? So for instance, one okay. One time, they had a, you had a, a Supreme Court case in which um, a person saw the police, and and they took off running. No, this wasn't. This was a lower court case, I think, out of New York, and the person took off running. Normally, flight is an indication of a guilty mind that somebody's got something to hide, and the police can use that as evidence along with some other evidence of a crime in order to have to detain that particular individual. And this particular one judge says that the police behavior in that particular community toward black men was so off the rails, um, the, the mistreatment, the abuse, people were being beat up that it was reasonable for uh, that young black man to take off when he saw the police and he threw out the evidence. So 
it's the totality of the circumstances. And certainly the courts are free to say, is there a difference between a black boy being in those circumstances versus a white boy? Is there a difference between being in this particular neighborhood, you know, in, in this urban environment versus being out in the suburbs? They will take all of that into consideration. But here's the thing, we live in a world where many of the judges bend over backwards to rule in favor of the government, right? So you can make all the argument in the world that there's a cultural difference and the courts are free to take that into consideration. The question is, is whether they're going to do it or not. Yeah, because the whole reasonable man, rational, you know, in economics, it's called the rational man, right? Would a rational person do this? And then, and then the law is called a reasonable man. But we all know that ra you know, being rational and reasonable have a lot of cultural implications. And it's also very specific to where you are. And so I would hope that the courts would take that into consideration when they're determining whether or not a person's um, Fourth Amendment rights have been violated. So, so let's go to the second one, right? So in the first one, the consensual encounter, the police are basically, basically just engaging with you. You are right. under, you're under no legal obligation to engage back with them. Right. And you, can, you should be able to leave at any time. Now, if the police, what do the police have to have in place in order to keep you from leaving if they, if they want to keep you around? Right. And so, of course, the, that was tier one, consensual, a consensual in, encounter. Tier two is what they call investigative detention. And then, of course, tier three is an arrest. But either one of those, the police can detain you. So in a simple investigative detention, what the police needs is they need reasonable suspicion that, um, that a crime has taken place and that the person that they're trying to detain, that they are detaining, uh, may have been involved in that crime. And that reasonable- can, I mean, let me, can, can they detain you as a person of interest? I mean, in terms of, you, not that you were involved, but you have some information about it? Well, here's the thing. Um, if, you, if, if you're a simple witness to the crime, right. and, they have, um, and, they, and they don't have any reasonable suspicion that you engaged in the criminal activity, then they must treat that encounter as a tier one encounter. Okay, they, so don't they have can't right. hold you. They can't hold you. They, they can't hold you. Okay. They can't search you. You don't have to give them your name. You don't have to t answer any questions. You don't have to do any of those things. Now, of course, what we talk, that's the law. That's the constitution. But what happens in reality, right, uh, often is something else, right? They will treat a, a, a tier one situation as a tier two, in which I'm about to explain. In a tier two situation, if the police have reasonable suspicion that the person that they're detaining has engaged in some criminal activity. Um, and, that, and, and that reasonable suspicion, they have to be able to articulate it. They have to put it in words. They can't just say, I had a hunch, or I just feel it in my guts, or I, you know, I had some general suspicion. It has to, they have to articulate it and they have to lay out facts. Say if this is challenged in court, this is what the, this is what the judge would be looking for. Now, here's the thing. Um, when you are detained, they can only hold you for a reasonable period of time to ascertain whether you've been involved in that criminal activity or not. 
And so they can't, and of course, a reasonable amount of time really depends on the circumstances. Sometimes a reasonable amount of time would only be 10 or 15 minutes. Sometimes it may be an hour, two hours, three hours, right? Depends on the circumstances of the situation. But even in those circumstances, while a person has to identify themselves, they have to let the police know who they are. They don't have to answer any questions. And the police do not have a general right to search the individual or to search their property. What they can do in, in, um, in, these, type of in these type of encounters, the police have a right to pat the person down in searching for weapons. So they don't have a right to go into a person's pocket and, and see what they got. They don't have a right to search the person's house or their property or whatever they, they may have, but they can do a general pat down of their outer clothes and to see if the person has a knife or a gun or something like that. Now, if the police pass a person down and they feel that there's some contraband, like for instance, the person has a bag of weed and in the police experience, they know what a bag of weed feels like when it's in a person's pocket, then they can dig in and, and get that bag of weed. But to do just a general search um, of, of, of the person or to search their property, that's not allowed. Now, say if the person, they can search the person's surroundings, like say if, it's, if the person is stopped in a car and um, the police can go in the glove compartment and search the glove compartment only because it's within reach of, of the person that they're detaining. And quote unquote, the argument is, is they're doing this for safety purposes. But at that point, the police doesn't have the right to search the whole car. Or they, you know, this type of thing. Now, what happens is, even doing an investigative um, detention, you don't have to ask, ask, answer any of the police questions. You can refuse to cooperate with the police. All can you have to you, do is, Can you invoke uh, that you want a lawyer at that? You can invoke that you want a lawyer and that type of thing. You can do all of those things. But at that point, the police is, is basically saying that we are, we're not arresting you. Right, this type of thing. Certainly when a person gets arrested and the police wants to ask them any questions at that point, they have to read them their Miranda rights and all of this type of thing. But even on the, but of course in that particular situation, you could, you could tell the police, you can just simply tell the police that you, you could just simply refuse to answer any of the questions. And you don't have to give the police consent to search. In other words, as a con condition for them to let you, let you go, right? This is often how police violate a person's right in a tier two situation. While so the where, police have a, hmm? So where on the tiers does like, I'm speaking for the most, most people listening probably, does like a typical traffic stop fall? Because that's not an arrest, right? So yeah, a, 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 a traffic stop is, I'm glad you asked that. A traffic, traffic stop is considered a tier two stop. So that's investigative detention. Investigative, right? right. And so if the police is stopping a person um, and they, they're going to give them a ticket and that type of thing, they certainly have a right. Now the person, usually in a traffic stop, a person will try to talk themselves out of it and that type of thing. All that's considered fair game. But generally speaking, the courts will treat a traffic stop as a tier two stop, because simply in most traffic stops, the police, even if you're guilty of a traffic violation, they don't have a right to arrest you. 
So that would not be a tier three stop. But I shouldn't. But do, if, if but I get they pulled do over, have I a right just, to detain you, huh? I shouldn't just like. But if I get pulled over, I shouldn't like. You know, I have. The, I know I have the right. They'll ask you where you're coming from, or <laughs> have you had something to drink, or do you know what you did, or why are you driving this way? Those yeah, no, you don't have are, to answer any. Right, right, right. You don't have to answer any. And what's, once again, a lot of people in the traffic stop feel that they have to answer those questions, right. or somehow they're in trouble or somehow they're going to get arrested or somehow. And if the police makes it, say if a person is aware that they can only be held for a certain period of time, but if the police make a condition of their release by answering certain questions, they have just violated your fourth amendment rights right there and there. So this is, so basically what's the theme I'm trying to say here? The theme is that the police on a daily basis, it's violating people's constitutional rights and it seems like the, the public is not aware of it. Of course, when somebody's gunned down and killed, right, we say, wow, was the police allowed to do that? Right, this, this kind of thing. The man was simply just running away. And certainly that would be a violation of a person's constitutional rights. But even at the lowest level, the lowest encounters, the police is just a, mo a matter of routine policing, police policy they are in a perpetual state of violating people's rights. And this is the jumping off point. Because a lot of the deaths of black folks are happening in very minor situations, either a tier one or tier two situation, that the police was, the person was pulled over for a tra traffic stop and not even subject to arrest. Even if what the police says is true, all that they can do is give them a ticket or a citation or whatever, and the person will be on their way. And next thing you know, it turns into the situation in which the person is dead and gone. So now, Brother, what the Brother Shabazz, I want to interrupt you for a second. You, you, you spoke earlier, and then you spoke just a second ago about somebody fleeing from the scene and, right. and being killed. I guess, where was that at, uh, where the brother got shot in the back? That was in Atlanta, but there was another situation. There was another back. one down in, I think, in North Carolina. Yeah, North Carolina, where... But now there's a, there's a, in the case law, there's a Supreme Court case that talks about, you know, killing somebody as they flee the uh, Yeah, absolutely. Crime. Talk right. about there's, that for a second. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the facts of the case was if there was a 15-year-old boy and he was suspected of breaking into someone's home and stealing a purse with, I believe it was $10 or $20 in the purse. And the police was chasing after him. He was, he was not armed, he was simply running. And then he came, of course, he was ahead of the police. He came to jump in the fence. And the, instead of the police saying, wow, you know, we're gonna use some other effort trying to catch this person or we'll just get him another day, they gunned him down. And this case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that under the Fourth Amendment, right? Cause that's a seizure. When, you, when, you, when the police apprehend someone, that's the seizure of the body, right? And the police said you cannot affect a, a seizure of a person running away um, from the police um, simply because they may get away. The only time the police um, can and should use deadly force if the person is an apparent threat to a deadly threat to the police or others. That's the only time the police can use deadly force to affect the arrest. And, that, and so they violated that individual's constitutional right rights by gunning him down. 
And so, and that's the same right, this same case in the same right that's implicated in all of these cases that we're, we're looking at now. That the police used deadly force in a situation where the individual was not a threat to the police or others. That's what's going on. That's a 1985 Supreme Court case. So, Chris, we're going to use you as the reasonable and rational man. Right, because you're know, making a mistake, but uh, you're, you're the young, you know, you're the youngster on the thing. Haroon and I are very jaded, right? And so we're going to use you as the reasonable and rational man. And looking at these first two encounters, number one, are, is this news to you? Are, are you learning something here? And uh, secondly, in any encounter you may have had with the police, if you had known what it is that Brother Shabazz has broken down right here, would it have changed anything for you? Yeah, I'm definitely learning. I didn't realize there were tiers and levels. I mean, it makes sense, but yeah, you, I've never really thought about it. I just figured once they start reading you your rights, <laughs> that's when you start getting your rights. But yeah, this is this is eye-opening for me to know that there's like a step process here. Because honestly, you don't really see it in action. And that's I mean, I mean that's basically what Harun is saying. You don't really see this, these tiers in action. They jump from, they don't even do one. <laughs> it, it all starts at two. But I'm uh, thinking about my personal stuff. I've had a lot of run-ins in traffic stops with police. They're mostly comedies, but I feel like knowing that, I would say if I knew those things, I think my outcome would be worse, if that sounds dark. Because <laughs> right, you, you may have said something that may have triggered them to go into another space or something? Yeah, I mean, these stories are long, but yeah, I I have put myself in really awful positions with saying things to police officers on traffic stops in general. So I haven't been of the mindset to, I don't need to cooperate with you. I'm just going to shut up. I'm more of the, I'm not going to cooperate with you, but I'm not going to shut up. <laughs> Does that make sense? No, no, Chris, I'm with you, right? I mean, this is, in other words, anytime a person quote unquote mouths off with the police and they risk that the police retaliate, right. mistreat them in some way, this type of intimidation. And so a lot of times you have to like look at the situation. Like say if you, you stopped in a tier one encounter and if you, before things had jumped off and come hostile or back and forth and so on and so down the line, you can quickly have the police verify that it's a tier one encounter by asking the police, am I free to leave? Right, this type of thing. Now, because your Fourth Amendment rights are, you know, have have been brought into play at that particular situation, they're implicated. The police are not allowed to lie to you when it comes to your constitutional rights. Like when they when they read your your Miranda rights, they can't play games with that. They have to. You they they can't like try to mislead you or, or confuse you and that type of thing. And the reason why I say that is that the police normally can just tell all the lies in the world to trick somebody into making an incriminating statement. They can just make up stuff, say, well, you know, my best friend, you know, saw, or your best friend saw you did do this and that. We got your fingerprints. We know that you did this. We talked to your, your, your cousin. On and on and on. All of this could be a big lie to try to get you to, to incriminate yourself. But when it comes to questions of a person's constitutional rights, the police must be honest. And so if you ask the police in a tier one situation, am I free to leave? They can't play around with that. 
Now, of course, what they, what they are constitutionally required to do and what they do in the street is two different things. Let's not be naive. There's a lot of crazy stuff happening on the streets. And like I said, the police violate people's rights all the time. They do it so often, I think a lot of them believe that they have a right to do what they're doing, even though they have classes teaching them point blank, all the things that I'm talking to you now about tier one, um, tier two, tier three um, encounters and all of this other business. So for, for instance, and so if, say for instance, if you're in a tier one situation and the police say, um, can I um, search your backpack? You can clarify the situation and to make sure you're not under arrest or whatever, and you can ask the police, do I have to give you permission to um, search my backpack? Right? Say, the police start asking say, yeah. you questions. You can ask them, do I have to answer your questions? Now, here's the thing about the whole thing about answering questions. Whether you are being, you're in, in a consensual encounter, you're being detained, or you're being arrested, you never have to answer the police questions. Now, if you're in a tier two, tier three situation where you're being detained and arrested, you are obliged to give the police your name, rank, and serial number. But beyond that, you don't have to answer any of their questions at all. You have a constitutional right. This is what people must remember. They, you have a constitutional right in all of these encounters not to answer any of the police questions. So, so and, Brother Chavez, go on to, uh, to tier three, and then I want to come back and talk about something that encompasses all three of them. Of course, most of us are familiar, not because we've been arrested, but that's, you know, right, we right. all see on TV the whole Miranda thing. So go right, into right. the third encounter. Well, the third encounter is, is arrest. And what that means is the police has probable cause to arrest you. Now, so, normally, so, the Constitution, I mean, I mean, I wanna, probable uh, cause and probable so, cause. So what's the difference between reasonable suspicion and probable? Because you need reasonable suspicion is needed to detain someone. Right, absolutely. Probable cause is needed to arrest someone. Tell me um, the difference between those two. Okay. Uh, okay, reasonable suspicion is a much lower standard, right? Probable cause, right? And a lot of times when, okay, and we hear about this all the time. We, you know, we see it in the courtroom dramas on TV and that type of thing. And so often of what the judge, when reading the instructions to the jury, when they say, they, they would tell the jury that you should have the same amount of confidence in the evidence that will get over the level of probable cause is when you're making a serious transaction in your life, like buying a house, right? This type of thing, or making some type of grave medical decision. In other words, the the, the evidence should rise up to the level of seriousness that you have confidence in it, that you would take a step forward in those kind of situations. Say, say for instance, if um, you had a loved one that was in a coma and the police, I mean, and, and the um, doctor said that they, the person wouldn't recover and you had enough confidence in the evidence that the doctors are laying, laying out to you, then that would be probable cause. If you was making some type of everyday transactions, like you, you know, you buying a, you know, some groceries, that'll be whatever decision you, you make along those lines. But if you buy a house, you have a certain amount of confidence that you are doing the right thing. So this is how they tried to break it down. Where reasonable suspicion just simply means that a reasonable person, you know, armed with these particular facts, would think that this person may be involved in this criminal activity. 
right? This type of thing. And so, for instance, if a house, if if it's just a, if it's just if it was just a shooting, and they said that um, the person who uh, was involved in the shooting was wearing um, black pants and a black hoodie and white shoes, was uh, light complexion and and was five five, and that type of thing. A lot of times the police, and, and it just happened, it just happened seconds ago, and the police are just on the scene. A lot of courts would say that's enough to establish reasonable suspicion to detain that person and to ascertain whether they were involved in whatever criminal activity that happened. Okay, so now go, now go to, I want to come back to when they start trying to figure out whether this person was involved with reasonable suspicion, but go forward now to probable cause and what happens in the arrest. Means um, basically, you you're getting locked up, right? And the police will have a right to forcibly detain you. They can put you in handcuffs. They can put you in the back of a car. They can do all of these things. But what people have to remember when uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to arrest, they still have a right not to answer any of uh, uh, the questions that the police. Believe it or not, people think that. A lot of people are confused, even when they're getting arrested, and they may think only if the police read me my Miranda rights do I have the obligation to keep my mouth shut or whatever. But the police don't have to read you your Miranda rights until they start asking questions. So some police are smart. They won't ask you any questions. They'll just put you in the back of the police car and have a long ride you know, you know, down to the jail and if you want to talk to them or you initiate a conversation, they don't have to like not engage you. They don't have to like shut up if you're initiating the conversation. And the other thing is a lot of times you should never consent even when you are being arrested. Normally the, the, um, the police will have a right to, to do a full search, to strip you down, to search your whole body, and if you're arrested in the home and wherever, wherever you're found, they can, like your car, they could tear it apart, they can search everything. But a lot of times people are arrested in a circumstances where the police don't have a right to search certain things. So say if a person is arrested outside of their house, they're arrested on their lawn because there was some type of public situation, but they're standing on their lawn, right? Um, the police in that circumstances would not have a right to go in the person's house and start searching the person's house for evidence of a crime. They would need a warrant to do that. But a lot of people are confused and they figure, and so the police says, you know, um, you know they may say, we're going, to, um, we're going to search your house. Is that okay with you? The person, see the, see the, the life stain, they don't have a right to search, but they will, they will mark that down as the person gave them con consent to search. This consent to search thing it's a really big deal because a lot of times what the person ends up getting charged with is what they found in, in the search, right? That's the only real evidence of a crime. And, and, but what am I trying to say? I'm saying even during an arrest, the police will go out of, the, out of their way to violate the person's constitutional rights by engaging in some type of trickery. They are stepping outside the line and, and so what does this do? You have upwards of 60 million contacts nationwide per year. And you got police 
engaging in this bad behavior, bad policing 24 seven, people are going to get frustrated in that situation. And a lot of times in these, in these encounters, people, the police will, will engage in these encounters with the hope that the person does something to escalate the situation. So they will stop a person in a quote unquote tier one situation, hoping that the person will get loud. The police will interpret that as the, the person is threatening to them. So now you're out of tier one, you're into tier two. Because the police is using your justification of being disrespectful or loud. Or, but what makes it is you hostile. In other yeah, words, the people to in them. fear of being assaulted by you. Right. And this is, this, is the, this is what's happened. The police do not stay in their lane. Right. And so one of the best things, listen, one thing you can say, there will be more black people alive today if they had less contact with the police department, with the police, right? That's just, just a fact. Right. And what happens is, is that a lot of times the police do not have a right to initiate yeah, a tier two type of situation. Well, let's, let's go back to that sort of fishing expedition vis-a-vis -vis the constitution, right? Because one of the things that, you know, in Black Lives Matter and all the things that we're sort of upset with right now in terms of racism and systemic racism in this country is that the country is not living up to the document which bounds us all together as citizens of this country, which is life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, we're all created equal, you know, 14, you know, all, all the amendments that all these equal protection things. But the, the cornerstone, correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Uh, Attorney Shabazz, but the cornerstone of our legal system is innocent until proven guilty, right? And what a lot of people don't realize in life for many things, you're not chosen, you're the last person standing after elimination. And what do I mean by that? When you apply for a job or a grant or, or to get into college or whatever, the college admissions committee doesn't say, aha, this person is the person I want them in here. They just start eliminating people they don't want, right? And then right. They, have, they have 50 slots. And if you wanted the 50 people that didn't get eliminated, you get in. It's not that you were chosen, that you just weren't eliminated. And so it would seem to me that in the presumption of innocence, that when a police officer, if they're really doing their job vis-a-vis -vis the Constitution, that when they have reasonable suspicion, their job should be to eliminate this person as quickly as possible, as opposed to trying to make that, choosing that person to be the one that was guilty, right? right. So talk a little bit about that, Brother Shabazz, because you know that you know, we see it on TV all the time. You see it in real life. So right. you see a guy who's, okay, suspect is six foot three, uh, 250 pounds. They stop some guy, right? And he's, if he's six one, okay, maybe, right? The dude is five nine. Right. Right? At that point, under, you know, innocent until proven guilty, that dude should just be eliminated. Go on about your business, sir, right? Or madam, whoever, right? But they may still keep them around. Why? Yeah, Mr. Guest, what you're talking about is bad policing. And it happens all the time. A lot of times, police officers, not only just would they will try to, to make, some, you know, make some suspect fit in a particular 
in a particular crime. Round, a round, round they, peg, square hole. Round peg, square hole, right? But a lot of times they're using it as a pretext to, to just go on a fishing expedition to find if the, the person is guilty of some other crime. This is why when the police roll up on a person, a lot of times they know they're wrong. They, a lot of times they really don't really suspect that person of anything, but they use this so-called reasonable sus suspicion excuse as a pretext to, to investigate the per person, period, to do, to do a shakedown. And the Fourth Amendment, by the way, is supposed to protect people from government harassment, protect people from mis being mistreated by the police. And so what, what's the first question they look for? You know, do you, do you have, they pull you over, do you have any drugs or guns in the car, right? This is not just for their protection, this is for, the, for them to arrest you, right? And they just want you to come up off the information. First thing they do when they stop a person on the street, they, what they do is they want name, rank, and serial number so they can see if you got any outstanding warrants. They, they pat you down to see if you're carrying any weed or any crack or any kind of drugs, any kind of paraphernalia at all. But what the deal is, is that the police are doing all of this unconstitutionally and they're engaging in bad policing. And this is the reason why a lot of people do not trust the police, especially in black communities, because they see it every day with their own eyes. I drive down the street, my neighborhood, all the time, I see some young teenagers, 13, 14, 15 years old, on their knees, assuming the position. What's their crime? Walking while black. 15, 20 minutes later, the police is cutting them all loose because they didn't find no weed, they didn't find any outstanding warrants, nobody had a gun in this type of thing. Did they have a right to stop those individuals in the first place? Now, they will say to themselves, oh, there's been some break-ins in the neighborhood. That's your reasonable suspicion. And they believe that young black males are were involved. Once again, that's enough to get them through the is court. That is that really enough if it went all the way through the courts? Listen, you would not believe what judges will sign, what kind of nonsense the judges will sign off on, right? This kind of thing. Especially if all you're trying to do is get the is it get the evidence thrown out. In other words, it's not like the original crime itself. It's not like, oh, this person really did burglarize this place or whatever, but the lawyer may go through the trouble of trying to get the bag of weed suppressed in court by pointing out the fact that the police had no right in stopping their client in the first place. The police will make up any kind of facts at all. They don't, they don't even necessarily have to be true. If they say there was a burglary, and if you're talking about an urban neighborhood, when, when is there not a burglary or a car break-in? When is there not some type of criminal act? And you can, under those guys, you can stop. Everybody in the neighborhood is a suspect because they got descriptions of suspect, suspects in different crimes from, from, um, from 14 to 64, right? It's, <laughs> so so yeah, everybody, they can stop me right, and hit me up under some crime that happened in the neighborhood and I fit the description. This, what I'm trying to say is the police are constantly out of their lane. They're not calling balls and strikes. They're not honest arbitra arbitrators. They are not um, doing their job. It's bad policing that's happening 24 seven and these lead to bad encounters. Why, why so, do you think 
from a public perception standpoint, why do you think that people aren't outraged? Are black folks and poor folks the only ones that are outraged by this? Well, I, I would have to question how outraged, now, black folks are outraged for cold-blooded murder, but how, how much, how outraged are they are about, you know, teenage kids, young black yeah. boys being stopped and harassed and mistreated? It's novocaine to our own pain. Black people be, have been, this, this situation has, the day that we, the, the day that we walked off the plantation, black folks have had a problem with the police. Well, even as slaves, black, you had the slave patrols and they were like police asking whenever a miscellaneous black person was walking into some situation without the company of some white person, they had to show they, their travel papers, they had to state their business. This has been a perpetual problem between the police and black and the black community for the last 400 years. Well, let me let me add this in. We talked about this a little bit earlier offline, uh, Brother Shabazz. I think there's a perception in the country that we're losing the battle against crime and that the police are up against the wall. But as it relates to Black men in particular in the criminal justice system, the police and the criminal justice system are like the New England Patriots, right? just beating people down and they've run a dynasty over the past 20 years. You could argue that the New England Patriots is probably the most successful sports franchise in the past 20 years, just because of how hard it is to win in football. And they've won what six in the past 20 years. But what's interesting is one of the reasons that they won is because they cheat, (laughs) right? They cheat. They've been caught cheating. Right. But there's a perception that, even though they cheat, they're still good and they didn't need to cheat to win, right? So the cheating right. is just, ah, that's just them doing their thing. They would have won anyway. Do you think that same perception, let me ask you this, Chris, do you, do you think the perception of the police is similar that way? Is that, ah, they might cheat, but you know, my man was guilty anyway, so it doesn't matter whether I cheated. I mean, that's the prevailing attitude, but, but not for us. I, uh, it reminds me, I, you know, I talk a lot of trash on Twitter. I don't want you to give out my Twitter tag either because that's, that's just oh, my personal lane for talking trash. So. Oh, they'll, they'll find you, man. This is the interwebs. <laughs> but I made a comment once. I forgot what it was, but it was about, it was around the Jacob Blake thing, right? And apparently some more news came out. I'm not even sure. I haven't read up on it where, you know, more information on why the police was there came out that I didn't know. And I commented like, you know, last time a black person broke up a fight or something. Because initially it was like he he showed up to separate a fight between two women or something and the cops showed up. I don't know. You know how it is. Right. But apparently more news came out where, you know, well, actually, you know, he had a record or the police were there for him or this happened. And the amount, I mean, I got pretty much attacked, like, like, like surrounded by mostly Russian trolls. But it was still like, you know, you know, real people saying, you know, well, he shouldn't have done this, 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 and this, you know, to equate to like, whatever he's did, he deserved these seven shots from the police, which is essentially, you know, the the Patriots cheating. Like, no, these aren't the, you're breaking the rules. Like, just because I, you know, have a police record or I commit a crime doesn't mean I get shot. And, and, and you know, what's funny is that the Patriots, 
the, the couple of times where they've been caught cheating was against the Jets and the Bengals, two right. not so good teams, right? <laughs> and so, and so the, the attitude of people in the public is like, I mean, they're so good. I mean, we can look overlook that because they're stupid. They, you know, they shouldn't. Right. Have, why would they need to do that? They were going to beat them down anyway, right? And so, when the police are violating people's rights and tricking them into doing things and giving up information, well, you gave me some information which implicated you in a crime. Well, you right? know, and that. I'm using that information against you now. Yeah. So, what difference that. does it make if I cheated? You know the people who who are overlooking the cheating are 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 looking at the police that, as protection for them though. You know, like like the team is called the Patriots, so a lot of people root for them because they called the Patriots. You know, it's the only team with with kind of the American flag on the helmet. So it's like it's like they're on the same team too. You can't you know you're not gonna call out your own team for cheating too. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot to do with. It. Yeah, good point, Chris. Um, no, um, Dre, I love your analogy, right? And it may very well be that the Patriots actually need to cheat, right? Like all these years. <laughs> right. like, we may just, find that out down the line, but, right? But, but the, let me tell you, the narrative is that they don't, right? Right. But let me tell you who does not need to cheat. That's the police. The enormous power of the government is so immense. And I think this is what's lost, right? How serious this situation is. Okay. A police officer is given a badge, a billy club, a gun, a uniform, and he can act under the color of law. He has the authority. And essentially he has the authority to take away a person's freedom. And under circumstances, under circumstances, <laughs> right, by whatever means necessary. This is serious business. And if the police unconstitutionally arrest you, you're essentially being kidnapped. If if a civilian did to did to a person what the police do and taking them into custody and putting them at some you know some location you know locking them up in in a jail somewhere that's essentially kidnapping that's essentially false imprisonment this is a very very serious situation but a lot of times we live in a society where particularly in the black community being arrested and going to jail is like a rite of passage that we don't even care. Yeah, and, and an inevitability. Right, inevi right. And, and, and this is a serious, serious situation. I would say to people, how would you like your 14-year-old daughter coming to age and there's some grown man out there, 6'2", 240 pounds, can, with nobody around, can put her in handcuffs and put her in the back of a car and drive her off to some location. And between that location and, and, and the jail, who knows is what's going to happen. That's serious business. And right. so when the police, when, when you invest any, anybody with that particular power, when you invest the government with, with that particular power, certain guidelines need to be laid out. This is right, serious so, business. So let's go with this. So that's a good transition into the solution orientation of the Hank and Herb show. So, Brother Shabab, what's the solution in your eyes? Here's the thing. Um, the solution to, as far as I'm concerned, is, and I hate to say it this way, but putting the police in their place, right? Putting them in their lane. In other words, forcing the police to, um, 
to recognize the lanes that are already laid out, not creating any new lanes or any new restrictions, but what they can do constitutionally. So here's the thing. What I suggest is the Congress, United States Congress pass a federal law, and they have the right to do this in, in the same way that they passed the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, Title IX, they're enforcing aspects of the United States Constitution so the Congress can do this. And so what I suggest is that every police encounter in which the police have, where they encounter a person, um, um, a member of the public, they are to inform that member of the public at the first encounter whether this is a consensual encounter, a detention, or arrest. Just to lay that out, to put everybody's mind at ease. I additionally, for accountability purposes, the police should identify themselves. They should say name, rank, and serial number, right? And, and if you are stopping a person like for a consensual encounter and you want certain information, you are to tell them exactly what you're investigating, what you're looking for, um, what the deal is. So say for instance, you as a consensual encounter, the police will go up and say, hi, I'm officer such and such. I'm with the, the fourth district, so-and-so. This is a consensual encounter. And what that means, the police will say, what that means is um, you're not being detained, you're not being arrested, and you're free to walk away at any time. You don't have to answer any of my questions. You don't have to give me your name and you don't have to consent to any request to be searched, to lay that out. That's transparency. Now that sounds like a lot, but look what we require a lot of other people to do when they, they do, they're doing simple things in society. I don't think that's too much to ask for the police. And what does that do? That, first of all, it reminds the police what lane that they are in, right? It, it reminds the police that this is not a tier two situation, so let's not treat it like a tier two situation. Because that's what's happening thousands of times a day, period. We're talking about 60 million contacts um, uh, a year where they, they will treat a tier one situation like a tier two and basically violate the person's constitutional rights. On a tier two situation where the person could be detained, the person should be told, point blank by the police, that this is an investigative uh, a detention, but you're not being arrested. You don't have to, besides giving me your name and date of birth, you do not to have to answer any of my questions. And once I, once I finish my investigation, which I have to do at a reasonable amount of time, um, you either you either free free to leave or I have probable cause to arrest you. Just landing out there, and you don't have to consent to any um, searches that I don't have the right to do. And, and you and, know what's interesting about that? Most people have some idea of tier three, right? Because we see it on TV all the time. You have the right to remain silent. Blah blah blah. Every every cop show shows what happens when a person gets arrested and they get thrown in a room and don't say anything or I want my lawyer and these other things. So if I'm hearing you right, you're basically taking sort of the Miranda situation where they read their rights when they're being arrested and you're pushing that all the way down to tier one. Absolutely. And, and, and here's the beauty of it, right? Cause I think this, this will stop things from being escalated, 
right? When you stop a person in a tier two situation, they've been detained. Because their Fourth Amendment um, rights are implicated when a person's being detained, the police should make it clear to them, and they cannot lie when, it, when you're talking about it, when, you, when you're giving people advice dealing with their constitutional rights, the police are not allowed to deceive you in that particular circumstances. So they should be honestly told why they are being stopped. Right. What's, the, what's the evidence? What crime do you suspect that I'm doing? If it's a burglary, you need to tell me that happened on such and such day. You need to tell me that. I should not be sitting there in the dark wondering what the hell's going on. Wondering why this person has taken away my liberty. Wondering why I cannot walk away from this situation. Wondering why I have been deprived of my freedom. Right. Right. Well, this is to make clear transparency with deep because a lot of people can become yes. frustrated and hostile toward the police because they simply know, don't know what's going on and they think that they're being harassed. And this they, was the only They work on for the us. Team. They work for us. Our they tax dollars, they work for us. It's not just not some separate agents, they work for us. But you know what? I have a couple of related solutions to your I think what you're saying about what the law that needs to be passed is you just want transparency. We talk about transparency all the time. Push it all the way down so the citizens know what their rights are, the police know what their rights are, and everybody's on the same page. But in a situation, Chris, this is for you. See, Chris is the entrepreneur. He's the he's a computer guy. So I, this is an app for you, Chris. So I'm, I'm gonna give this to you. You can do this. Um when you get pulled up, you know how you have OnStar in your car? Right. Um, when you, like if you get into an accident or run out of gas or, you know, have a flat tire, OnStar like automatically comes on and is like, hello, Mr. Fine, this is OnStar. We understand you're on Route 33 in North Carolina and you have a flat tire. Should we send someone out? And he's like, yeah, man, send somebody out. I'm in trouble out here. But imagine if you're being pulled over by the cops and you, you know, and as brother Shabazz said, you're automatically in a tier two investigative detention situation because they have some reason to believe you did something and they're pulling you over for that. That imagine if you had, I call it cop alert, right? Imagine if you had a, um, a thing like OnStar that you could push the button and you have cameras activated and microphones in your car that when the cop comes up to your window, you say to them, I have cop alert on the car. My attorney is on the, is on the, uh, is speaking to you right now. I'd like for you to give them the bad, your badge number and identify yourself to them. And, and they're going to speak to you on my behalf. <laughs> right. Then they say, could you please get out the car, sir? <laughs> well, then at that point, everything is being recorded and cop alert, which is an agency that's full of lawyers. This right. stuff is going live in real time. They're seeing everything happening. So any of the shenanigans that go on with the cop at that point is, is being logged in real time with them, right? That may not keep you from being right. beat up or killed by some rogue <laughs> cop, but it will still put it in a situation that if you're in a tier two, you at that point, you really, you move everything in terms of questioning with the police. You shut your mouth and turn over your tier two, two situation to your lawyer who is on cop alert, right? Right. And my my second one, and hey, and if you had a I have cop alert, if you have the I have a cop alert uh, on my car bumper sticker, believe me, you ain't gonna get pulled over a lot, right? Because <laughs> they just don't want to deal with that, right? The second thing is for a lot of 
folks that are near and dear to my heart, young Negroes in, in inner city environments. They say, you, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of um, youth service, you know, organizations that are dealing with young black men and young black uh, women in these neighborhoods who are constantly being harassed by the police, right? Just for walking down the street, not involved with criminal activity. You know, they may have brothers or uncles or aunts or moms and dads that may have been or friends, but they just minding their business, right? And they get harassed all the time. So what if we had like a nonprofit organization in these, organ in these cities that gave out cards to these kids that is their lawyers, right? So they say, you get pulled over, you know, you get stopped by the cop, pull this out your pocket and say, call my lawyer, right? Now, talk to them. And eventually when they start seeing these cars and these kids are educated on what you're talking about, Brother Shabazz, and they got somebody advocating for them, they're going to stop harassing them. Hmm. Unless they have real, <laughs> uh, you know, reasonable suspicion. And Unless sure they, they have real Make sure they go costs. in their pocket. Make sure they go in their pocket real slow. <laughs> or maybe you have it, you know, yeah. you, you have it on, you, you got it like a little thing, a little Medallion. lanyard on. Yeah. You have a little, a little lanyard on, right? <laughs> hey, Brother Drake, no, listen, I think you have a great idea. I mean, absolutely great idea because um, you want to empower people. Now, what I just laid out, it would be great that everybody knew exactly what all their rights were, this, that, and the other. And then they can use their discretion on how... Right they interact with the police. Because if you're dealing with some police officer who's unhinged, it may not be a good idea to start spouting off about all your constitutional rights, right? This kind of thing. So you can use your own judgment. That's, the, that's my that, problem that, right there. That comes yes sir, no sir real quick. You're in the middle of, you know, on the road, yeah, it's raining outside, nobody's around. But it's the thing though, right? But, in, but say if you're the on-star situation, right? right? And when you push a button, and at the very minimum, it starts recording everything that's happening. Right. Right, and what happens is, if the if you pass a statute where the police have to give their name, rank, and serial number, and that type right. of stuff, yeah. at the very minimum, even in an arrest situation, your people know where you are because oh, yeah. it will send a text and an email and a recording of what has transpired automatically to your loved ones that they know, and you they can go search for you if if they if you can't find out right away what jail you went went to, but they. But it record where you was arrested, you know, this type of thing. If the officer tells their name and what the police department, you can talk to it, even without talking to the police, just simply to record who's arresting you. Is, the, is it the county? Is it is the city police? Is it the feds? Whatever the deal is. Because essentially when the police pick you up off the streets, and this is what I'm talking about, the seriousness of what's going down. You are taking away a person's liberty. When you put somebody in handcuffs, you can do anything to them. They're helpless. Even a grown big old man can be killed, you know, by the, the weakest person because they've been handcuffed. You can't defend yourself. To take away somebody's liberty is a big, big deal, right? And we have to bring the big deal back. We have to say, my God, this is horrible. The government cannot engage in this activity willy-nilly. They cannot just be rolling up on people, putting them on their knees, robbing them of their dignity and their self-respect without any cause. If a person doesn't want to go through the embarrassment of talking to the police in public on the open street and they don't have any reasonable suspicion or, 
or probable cause they engaged in a, um, in a crime, they should be free to walk away. For whatever, <laughs> if nothing else, just to avoid the embarrassment. You have to bring the dignity back. Now, whole, of course, getting the public and getting politicians to back us on these issues, but your idea is great because it empowers the individual. Right. And it's a big market for it. Oh, yeah. I it's mean, 60 million encounters a that's year. That's right. And, and you know, I, I'm and not so a capitalist. I, I would tell people to push the button even on a tier yeah. one. You know, yeah. Because a tier one will accelerate to a two and a three in no time. Hey, I'm, I'm not a capitalist, but I see a capitalistic solution in this. I'm not even interested in development myself. I want to see it as a public good. But in all seriousness, this kind of a thing will, once it catches on and the technology solution is there, it will bring people, it will bring the police into an understanding because information is power, right? And right. once you get put in, once they start dealing with lawyers, they have to act like they got some sense because they know that that can be used against them. Right. And, and, and so it's one thing when, you know, somebody with lawyer information starts spouting their mouth, but it's another thing when a real lawyer who knows the law starts, starts talking. But to go back to the other thing, and I'll say this, I'll let you guys wrap up and we'll, we'll get out of here. But I, I think that we need to have some organizations that are really advocating on behalf of young black kids and, and neighborhoods because some of them are just being harassed for no reason. And, and the police need to leave them alone. You know what I'm saying? Deal with, the, deal with the real cr criminals that are dealing with real risk. We're not trying to keep you from doing your job. Your job is, like you said, the reasonable, real reasonable suspicion and real probable cause stop stopping these guys and gals and putting them on their knees and so the thing is if these young people know that somebody is there some youth center or some whatever is advocating for them right and they can go and know that somebody's sticking up for them as it relates to the police and they empower the chances of you keeping them off the street and getting them involved in something that's going to get them you know towards a more productive life and and the life chances that they may have that are lesser than others in some of these neighborhoods go way up in my opinion. Right. And so you just got, they got it. Somebody has to protect them from the police. Right. And, uh, you know, and some people to listen to this and say, that's just ridiculous. Why would you think you need to protect them for the police? But I think in, in, in this COVID world that we find ourselves in where, where the distractions have been taken away and we've seen the show in real time, I don't think that's too much of a stretch right. to think that some people actually need to be protected from the police. I got a question Absolutely. from Haroon. Haroon, do you know if 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 police officers are incentivized for like, you know, I know that probably, I know that's incentivized to a certain level for like tickets and they have quotas, but like are they incentivized for arrests and things like that? No, all the time. Right, all they, the time. And that's and the problem, I think. It's like right, no, it's, if you see people running away and it's like, no, I gotta get him. And it's like you really have to get him right right now for like, you know, it could be something like a traffic stop and a guy just starts running. It's like, oh, we got to get him. And you're pulling out a gun. And I'm like, something is driving him. I know there's several things that drive him. But I think, you know, some if we could eliminate a lot of the motivation to want to kill or maim someone over like a misdemeanor. Or to, or to crack down, period, right? If, you, right? if you're being judged on how many arrests that you make, Right. How many callers you 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 bring in? What was particularly disturbing in in Baltimore City? Uh, okay, the federal government had passed some type of statute that um, that like for Baltimore City and other jurisdictions, for every gun arrest that they made, they.
they got like five or fifteen thousand dollars. Oh yeah, I signed up for that. And what happened is, no, I'm talking about the the police department, not the right. police. No, I'm so saying, yeah, happened, I'll become a cop for that. What, what happened is, if the police roll up on you, and you had a whole bag of crack cocaine, they were more interested on in whether you had a gun. Right. Like exactly. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> if, if, I mean. You could be involved in the most serious crime in the world. And yeah, the first, you could, yeah, you could be a serial killer with a knife. Out. They don't want to be bothered with you, right? <laughs> no, 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 this is true. This is true. I mean, uh, people would be implicated in like very serious crimes, rapes, all kinds of stuff, robberies. The thing, the police, is, when they come to arrest you, the most important thing on their minds or when they pull somebody over is whether you got a gun. Because they were really racking up money. And this is why they would just stopping people in a tier one situation on just for the purpose to shake them down and to see if they had a gun. And of course, that was, they treated a tier one situation as if it was tier two, this kind of thing. Here's the thing, what we gotta remember is these encounters can go to zero to 100 in no time at all. Look what happened to J Jacob Blake. The police was, between the time that the police arrived on the scene and the time that you heard seven shots was three minutes. Three minutes, they made an assessment. Oh, and the wow. police, they arrived on the scene. They were confused. They did not know that Jacob Blake was the subject of the, um, of the you know, disturbing the peace of the domestic of call and all of this. They had no idea. They just encountered this brother. He didn't conform to what they wanted him to do instead of letting him walk away or shaking it off or whatever the deal is, they escalated the situation from zero to 100 within three minutes. So if you so look you, at- So what you're saying is when, when they came upon the scene, since they did not know it was him, he was automatically in a tier one. Yeah, he was a tier one, absolutely, right? Because everybody standing around that was on that scene and was plenty of people in the neighborhood, every one of them were tier ones. They were just potential witnesses to some crime, something that they were investigating. So when the police arrives on the scene and there's a bunch of people there and you're dealing with a crime that you know is likely only just one suspect, then the other 30 or 40 or 50 people on the scene, they're just tier, potential tier one encounters, plain and simple. So they may have encountered him on a tier one and it escalated in under three minutes he was dead. Eric Gardner, right? You would well, not they, believe they how well, they didn't kill him. Who's this? No, Blake. they that. Who's this? I'm talking about Blake. They, they, no, they no, I'm talking him. about Eric. I'm talking about Eric Gardner. Oh, when the guy who was yeah, yeah the selling, devil, selling the loose cigarettes. Loose. The police weren't on the scene that long at all. Just a matter of no. minutes before this man was dead. These things escalate. We have to go about the business of putting police in their place. First of all, if you're in an environment where the people don't like you and you know it's a hostile situation in the first place, don't approach people. It's just like your neighbors, right? <laughs> if you know certain people in the neighborhood, your neighbors, even if they're grown people and they don't like you, what, do, what does a normal person do? You they don't engage them. <laughs> they could be living in the neighborhood 10 years. Right? I don't got nothing to say to that person because they don't like me. I don't know why. I ain't never done nothing to them. You know what I'm saying? We got our trash cans confused yeah, you, one you time. Don't, you don't engage with them until you absolutely have to. Right. And so what happens is 
we got to get, we have to put the police in the lane. We have to stop all these encounters. And I think the beauty of your app is it would, it would have the police back off because right. as the police, because what happens is they'll just get tired of being written up. They'll be good. If they know everybody's armed, everything's being videoed and I can lose my job just like this. That's right. At some point they would get the message. Yeah. This is, <clears throat> harassing people is just not worth it. And what is happening is the police engage in a perpetual, um, um, perpetual state of harassment of the black community. This is what's happening. This is what's really being overlooked in this equation. We have to put them in, in their lanes. I think the most effective way is to pass a yeah. congressional statute. Because people right. are trying to do a piecemeal. What I'm talking about right now, you have various police departments, various cities, various states thinking about these particular ideas. But listen, there's 12,000 different police jurisdictions, police departments in this country. There's 50 states plus the District of Columbia. Getting all of them to do something about this problem, it's not going to happen. Not, not in a timely fashion. And so that's so there, it. So there you have it. So we, we, uh, we want you to check out Haroon's piece, Searching for a Solution to the Public Health Crisis of Police Brutality in the Black Community. So educated-guesses.com right now. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to The Hank and Herb Show, a podcast where we discuss the problems and the issues of the day, especially those that plague the black community. We don't just discuss the problems, but we offer up solutions that begin with you. The Hank and Herb Show can be found at hankandherb.com. The Hank and Herb Show is also a member of the Educated Guesses family. The show and other content from Educated Guesses can be found at educated-guesses.com. Please go to educated-guesses.com and sign up for our mailing list to receive episodes of the show in your email inbox, along with a whole host of other great content. You can check out more of Haroon Shabazz's writing at theblackscene.com. That's theblackscene.com. You can check out Chris Fun's writing at fundamentals.com. That's F-U-N-N-D-A-M-E-N-T-A-L-S.com. Again, thank you for listening in, and hopefully we'll see you on the next podcast. In the meantime, stay blessed, be peaceful, and have a wonderful day.